Catechesis with Pope Benedict the Sistine. Saint Benedict. Papa Benedict's Catechesis at the general audience on Wednesday, the 9th of April, 2008. Dear brothers and sisters, today I would like to speak about Saint Benedict, the founder of Western monasticism and also the patron of my pontificate. I begin with the words of St. Gregory the Great, who writes about St. Benedict, the man of God who shone on this earth with so many miracles, was just as brilliant in the eloquent exposition of his teaching. The great Pope wrote these words in the year 592. The holy monk had died just 50 years earlier and was still alive in the memory of the people, and above all, in the thriving religious order founded by him. St. Benedict of Norcia, with his life and work, has had a fundamental influence on the development of European civilization and culture. The most important source on his life is the second book of the Dialogues of St. Gregory the Great. It is not a biography in the classical sense. In accordance with the ideas of his time, he wanted to illustrate through the example of a real man, of St. Benedict in this case, the ascent to the peaks of contemplation, which can be realized by those who abandon themselves to God. Thus he gives us a model of human life as a climb towards the summit of perfection. In this book of the Dialogues, St. Gregory the Great also recounts many miracles performed by the saint, and here too, he does not simply wish to recount something curious, but to show how God, by admonishing, helping and even punishing, intervenes in the concrete situations of the life of man. He wants to show that God is not a distant hypothesis placed at the origin of the world, but is present in the life of man, of every man. This perspective of the biographer is also explained in light of the general context of his time. In between the 5th and 6th centuries, the world was shaken by a tremendous crisis of values and of institutions, caused by the collapse of the Roman Empire, by the invasion of new peoples, and by the decay of morals. With the presentation of St. Benedict as a luminous star, Gregory wanted to indicate in this terrible situation here in this very city of Rome, the way out of the dark night of history. In fact, the work of the saint and, in a particular way, his rule, were to prove bearers of an authentic spiritual leaven, which over the centuries changed the face of Europe, far beyond the borders of his country and his time, by kindling, after the fall of the political unity created by the Roman Empire, a new spiritual and cultural unity, that of the Christian faith, shared by the peoples of the continent. It was thus that the reality that we call Europe came to be born. St. Benedict was born around the year 480. He came, as St. Gregory says, ex provincia Nursiae, from the region of Norcia. His wealthy parents sent him to study in Rome. However, he did not stay long in the Eternal City. As a fully plausible explanation, Gregory mentions that the young Benedict 
was put off by the dissolute lifestyle of many of his fellow students and did not want to make the same mistakes. He wanted to please God alone. Soli Deo placere desiderans. Thus, even before the conclusion of his studies, Benedict left Rome and withdrew to the solitude of the mountains east of Rome. After a short stay in the village of Enfile, today Afile, where for a time he lived with the religious community of monks, he became a hermit in the nearby Subiaco. He lived there for three years, completely alone in a cave, which, since the High Middle Ages, constitutes the heart of a Benedictine monastery, called the Sacro Specco. The period in Subiaco, a period of solitude with God, was for Benedict a time of maturation. Here he had to bear and overcome the three fundamental temptations of every human being. The temptation of self-affirmation and desire to put oneself at the centre. The temptation of sensuality. And lastly, the temptation of anger and revenge. Indeed, it was Benedict's conviction that only after having overcome these temptations would he be able to say a useful word to others about their own situations of need. And so, having reconciled his soul, he was fully able to control the impulses of the ego, so as thus to be a creator of peace around him. Only then did he decide to found his first monasteries in the valley of the Anio, near Subiaco. In the year 529, Benedict left Subiaco so as to settle in Monte Cassino. Some have explained this move as an escape from the intrigues of an envious local cleric, but this attempt at an explanation has proved unconvincing, since the latter's sudden death did not induce Benedict to return. In reality, this decision was called for because he had entered a new phase of inner maturity and of monastic experience. According to Gregory the Great, the exodus from the remote valley of the Anio to Monte Cassio, a hill which, dominating the vast surrounding plain, is visible from afar, has a symbolic character. A hidden monastic life has its own raison d'être, but a monastery also has its own public finality in the life of the church and of society. It must give visibility to the faith as a force of life. Indeed, when on the 21st of March 547, Benedict concluded his earthly life, with his rule and with the Benedictine family founded by him, he left a heritage that down the centuries has borne and still bears fruit all over the world. Throughout the second book of the Dialogues, Gregory illustrates to us how St. Benedict's life was immersed in an atmosphere of prayer, the foundation of his existence. Without prayer, there is no experience of God. But Benedict's spirituality was not an interiority outside of reality. In the anxiety and confusion of his time, he lived under the gaze of God, and as such never lost sight of the duties of daily life and of man with his concrete needs. <laughs>
By seeing God, he understood the reality of man and his mission. In his rule, he describes monastic life as a school of the service of the Lord, and asks his monks, Let nothing be preferred to the work of God, that is, to the divine office or the liturgy of the hours. He underlines, however, that prayer is in the first place an act of listening, which must then be translated into concrete action. The Lord is waiting for us to respond every day with facts to his holy teachings, he affirms. Thus the life of the monk becomes a fruitful symbiosis between action and contemplation, so that in all things God may be glorified. In contrast with a facile and egocentric self-fulfillment, often exalted today, the first and indispensable commitment of a disciple of St. Benedict is the sincere search for God, on the way mapped out by the humble and obedient Christ, whose love he must put before all else. And thus, in the service of the other, he becomes a man of service and peace. In the exercise of obedience put into action with a faith animated by love, the monk achieves humility, to which the rule dedicates an entire chapter. In this way, man becomes ever more conformed to Christ and attains true self-fulfillment as a creature in the image and likeness of God. The obedience of the disciple must correspond with the wisdom of the abbot, who in the monastery holds the place of Christ. His figure, outlined above all in the second chapter of the rule, with a profile of spiritual beauty and demanding commitment, can be considered a self-portrait of Benedict, since as St. Gregory the Great writes, the saint could not teach otherwise than as he himself lived. The abbot must be both a tender father and also a strict teacher, a true educator. Inflexible against vices, he is nevertheless above all called to imitate the tenderness of the Good Shepherd, to help rather than to dominate, to accentuate more with deeds than with words, all that is good and holy, and to illustrate the divine commandments by his example. To be able to decide responsibly, the abbot must also be someone who listens to the advice of his brothers, because the Lord often reveals to the youngest the best solution. This provision renders surprisingly modern a rule written almost fifteen centuries ago. A man of public responsibility even in small circles, must always be a man who knows how to listen and knows how to learn from what he hears. Benedict describes the rule as minimal, tracing only an initial outline. In reality, however, it offers useful directions not only to monks, but also to all those who seek guidance on their pathway to God. For its measure, humanity and sober discernment between the essential and the secondary in spiritual life, it has been able to maintain its illuminating force all the way up to the present time. Paul VI, by proclaiming St. Benedict patron of Europe on the 24th of October 1964, 
intended to recognize the marvelous work accomplished by the saint through his rule for the formation of European civilization and culture. Today, Europe, having just exited a century, deeply wounded by two world wars, and then the collapse of the great ideologies that were revealed as tragic utopias, is in search of its own identity. In order to create new and lasting unity, political, economic and juridical instruments are certainly important. But an ethical and spiritual renewal must also be awakened, which draws upon the Christian roots of the continent. Otherwise, Europe cannot be rebuilt. Without this vital sap, man remains exposed to the danger of succumbing to the age-old temptation of wanting to redeem himself by himself. A utopia which, in different ways, in 20th century Europe has caused, as Pope John Paul II pointed out, a regression without precedent in the tormented history of humanity. In seeking true progress, let us too listen today to the rule of St. Benedict as a light on our pathway. The great monk remains a true master at whose school we can learn the art of living true humanism. The time has come to lay it down and find it all in you. More than this world could ever give In one glimpse of you The fire burns within my soul A love too loud, it won't let go So draw us close
love you is to serve you to know you is to love you to love you is to serve you